We have two chief complaints in emergency medicine that override everything. I waited too long, and the doctor never told me anything. The patients often don't understand at any level what we've told them. The problem with starting to list differentials is when do you stop? Every one of those assertions is wrong. Is wrong. We do not treat a number. We treat a condition. We're not very good at discharge instructions. If you think that calculus wins cases, you're a buffoon. Darwinian triage. <laughs> I don't like the term physician extender. It sounds like something I should be buying at an adult <laughs> bookstore, okay? See, that is the problem. Hello, welcome. Rick Bucato, Mel Herbert, Greg Henry, July Risk Management Monthly. Gentlemen, hello and welcome. Rick, it's summertime and the living is easy, but the medical legal questions don't get any better. So here we go. What are we going to do this month? Well, we got a paper that we saw in, was it, Annals of Emergency Medicine? It's entitled... Patient comprehension of emergency department care instructions. Are patients aware of when they do not understand? What? I can't even pronounce <laughs> the title. You know? Am I having trouble already? Patience. Anyway, Annals of Emergency Medicine. This is in the April 2009 issue. Kirsten Engel and colleagues from Ann Arbor. This is the University of Michigan where Dr. Henry has an appointment. At, did I see in here? St. Joseph Mercy Hospital. Did I see that? Yes. Absolutely. Anyway, that's also a hospital where you have practiced for many years. 35 years. I like Dr. Little. Along with Dr. Little, yes, and many others. Okay, so what does this paper tell us? Well, this paper finally gets to a point that I've been trying to make for 35 years, and that is we give people too much. Too much is less. And what we do is we bury them with crap, and they do not understand. The most common piece of trash outside the emergency department in a lot of places is what? The discharge instructions. They need to be short, to the point, specific. And then if you ask even educated people, and if you actually look at the patient population of the University of Michigan Hospital and St. Joseph Mercy Hospital, there's a reasonable mixture of very intelligent people in those who pass through those doors. And they don't know what's going on. Mel, you reviewed this paper. What do you think? It's actually a well-done paper. What they did is they took research assistants and after you discharged the patient and did your normal thing, they said, look, uh, what did the doctor say to you? Then they looked at not only how it correlated with what the docs actually said, but also their understanding of what was said, and it was very well done. They only took English-speaking people, and so they made it really, the bias was towards, we're going to take a group of people that are pretty smart, speak the same language as the abstractors and most of the doctors, and so everything was biased in favor of this working well, and they found that the patients don't, this is not a memory thing, this is mostly a comprehension thing, because they only really comprehended the full extent of what was being said about 20% of the time. There were five domains that they specifically looked at. Diagnosis and cause. How many times have you heard a patient say, what did the doctor say was wrong? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Well, actually, they have a number of very clear examples about that. And one of them was a lady with PID. What was the diagnosis? I don't know. What therapy did they give you? Uh, I don't know. And it was clearly written out and clearly discussed that you have PID and you need to take these antibiotics and this is serious. And that was just one example of the way that this lady was clearly confused about the whole encounter. And if you want to make it all the more difficult for them to understand, do it in Latin. You have otitis media. Mm-hmm. Oh, what is that, doctor? That's a middle ear infection. Well, why don't you call it a middle ear infection? You see doctors who ought to know better 
all the time putting down a diagnosis of otitis media or otitis externa. It's like, what are you thinking about? You putting that on the aftercare instructions? Are supposed to understand what you said? What I love is when it says cold packs TID. Yeah, I mean, actually. As if all of our patients were Latin scholars and had all studied what that meant. It's embarrassing that an emergency physician who's out in practice would think that that would be a reasonable instruction. And then there's always the FUs and the AM. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, there. right, so FU right. and AM. This goes with our bias, which is we're not very good at discharge instructions, and the patients often don't understand at any level what we've told them. So what are the implications of that? Well, the implications, I think, are very clear that we're incredibly good at teaching the residents what the differential is of dystadacokinesis. Maybe we're you no- are. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, we'll talk about that later. But the big problem is most of what we do is simplistic and repetitive, and we should be good at instructing people who are not good at what we do, which is medicine. They're not supposed to know how to speak medicalese and how we can inform them of what we think they had what we did, and here's the key, what they need to do now. You know, the smartest doc I ever saw in this business would say this to the patient, what did I just tell you, and where are you supposed to go, and what are you going to do? Because he had to have some check on the system as to whether these people were actually going to be able to enter the system. Most of my cases over the 34 or 35 years I've been looking at medical legal cases Probably half of them have to do with the discharge program, the discharge instruction, the re-entry into the system. Because it's very rare that you actually send somebody home with appendicitis right in front of you. We send all kinds of people home who have nonspecific abdominal pain who we need to relook at at a certain point in time. If they don't understand that, then everything we've done and all the money we've spent has been a horrible waste of time. Well, I've got actually a provocative question then. Let's say that even these docs did a good job and the patients weren't comprehending and we as a profession need to do a better job of making our patients understand. Okay, let's accept that. But medico-legally, if I give them a beautiful print-outed form that's 10 pages long that has everything in there and they don't follow it and something bad happens, when I'm in a court of law, can I say, look, Here's the printout I gave them. It's their fault. It's written at an eighth grade level. I gave them everything. And so it's not my fault that they couldn't follow them. It's not my fault they didn't follow up the way they should. It's not my fault they didn't come back when they had a fever. It's all written right there. Well, Isn't it, that a great thing to have for the it's lawyers? It's a great thing, but it's not the best thing. The best thing would be that piece of paper in simple words, easily understood, and then a note on your chart that said, patient expressed understanding of the instructions when to come back, something like that. That would be rock-solid iron gold. But you know what? We've got to do the best we can, but I think we make a mistake when we don't discharge the patient. I mean, I don't care who has them sign the piece of paper. The nurses usually do that where I am. But I want to go in that room, the last person, to bring this thing together because there's always something, there's always some misunderstanding that you need to clear up right at the end. And I don't care whether it's an understanding of what the food's supposed to be. Can they go to work? Do they need a... I don't want to make them little doctors. Rick's point is absolutely correct. We give them way too much information and learning, and we don't separate it clearly from instructions. Many years ago, I worked on a discharge information system, and quite frankly, it on every specific problem 
gave them more information than a second-year medical student has about the disease. You should have seen the one I wrote for trigeminal neuralgia. I'm embarrassed about it now. I mean, there's no reason coming from an emergency department. You need that kind of stuff. What you do need is the re-entry criteria. And I think that that's where we've made a huge mistake. New, worst, or persisting. <clears throat> that is it. And you don't say go to your family doctor if new, worse, or persisting. You say come back here immediately. We've been doing this for a long time. I don't honestly believe that our aftercare instructions, or actually lack thereof, has been an item in one of our alleged lawsuits for 33 years. One page. One and, page. And you get sued a lot. And so yes, you would and know. we're experts at being sued. <laughs> I can tell you it had nothing fact, to do with in the In fact, aftercare. it's like the butcher shop at his place. You've got to stand in line to serve them process. You know? <laughs> now, we've talked about aftercare instructions a number of times, and this paper just serves as more fodder for it. More is not better. You can computerize this thing and put those buttons in. Yeah, I think that there are parts of a computerized order after instructions. Maybe prescription writing. Maybe that is efficient, good, doses, weight-related, those kinds of things. Yeah, fine. But I'm not interested in your eight pages. Yep, I think that that's absolutely right. By the way, this is not the first paper that's looked at patient perception. There was a very, very good one published in JAMA four or five years ago. I can't bring it to the top of my head right now, but what they did was they talked about what the patient remembered about what happened in the examination room. So they talked to people 10 days after the visit. They asked things like, did he look at your eyes? And what they did, of course, was they had a camera surveillance of the thing. Did he look at your ears? Did he do this? Did he, she do that? And you know what? They were just about as good as flipping a coin, unless it was a rectal or a pelvic. You remember that? They remembered that a little better. But they didn't remember whether they had their heart listened to. Did they listen to both sides of the chest? None of that stuff. So I think we overestimate how impressive we are to the patients. I don't think they're that much into it. Well, I like your clinical pool of have the patient in some way, in some non-derogatory manner, repeat back to you, you know, do you understand what's happened? Do you understand where you're following up, when you're following up? And just as that extra step, I think, is their little quiz at the end. Okay, now it's time for the quiz. When are you coming back? Who are you seeing? You know <laughs> no, what? I don't do that because I find that to be... Well, there's got to be embarrassing. Well, if there's got to be a way to do it. it. No, no. I think there's pleasant ways of doing this. Like, John, do you remember who you're going to see now and when's that going to be? By the way, do you need me to call that doctor to make sure he gets in? Or can you usually get in? There are pleasant ways of doing that without insulting anybody. But I think a little conversation about what you think it was. And when they ought to do something is, to me, particularly when I'm dealing with little kids, let's pretend there's no lawsuit system. I'd still feel morally bad if the family didn't know how to follow up or reenter the system with that kid. So you don't say to them, look, you look pretty stupid to me. I just want to make sure that you understand what's going on here. So when are you supposed to follow By the way, Is that the right? That's probably not the right way, is it? Anytime you teach, as you're well aware, I always start out by saying... You know, I'm going to cover some of the basics. Again, I know you, most of you all know this, but would you mind if I went over that? Everybody wants you to do that because they know that's what the rest of the discussion is predicated upon, is reviewing that basic knowledge. I give a talk about abnormal eye movements. Oh, that must be a real uh, sleeper. <laughs> 
Actually, it's quite exciting, Rick. <laughs> I'll make sure to call on you the next time we need somebody to draw out the relationship. But when I say, let down me just. Down and out. I know. Remember down and out. That's what I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so if I say, let me just show this for just a second, everybody's happy because they don't all remember what innervated the superior oblique. Got it. I got uh, it. For those people who are just recent subscribers and have not heard our aftercare tirade in the past, I just think I would like to restate two things which I haven't stated in this version of it. Number one, I personally, you made reference to it, I personally give out the aftercare instructions to the patient. I do it because it's faster. I don't want to put that thing up on the board and have the nurse get to it in 20 minutes. And I want to do it myself because I think I can do it better than anybody else. I want to be the last one to get that key part of information. So I don't think it's unreasonable to do that. And also, you don't know what instructions the nurses are really going to give. And anything else? Yes. We give them a copy of all of their lab, their EKG. We put down what x-rays we took and what our reading was, whether it be preliminary reading by the emergency physician or by the radiologist. And we put the diagnosis down so that, and our aftercare also concludes a copy of the prescriptions that we gave them so that that stands alone. Everything that the family doctor follow-up needs to know is on that piece of paper. So it's not just for the the patient. It is for the family physician and follow-up as well. We do one other thing now, which I'm sorry we didn't start doing earlier, and that is If you come in with an abnormal blood pressure and we can't explain that, and on the way out the door, we take it again, and we'll take it on everybody out the door. We ask the question. Now, if you're going to ask the question, you've got to do something with the question. And so at that moment in time, we'll write down and say, your blood pressure today was 172 over 100. Here's a piece of paper. Take that back to your doctor Because could it be from being in the emergency room? Could be, but there's a very recent study which we published in the abstracts which basically said half the people we send home who had elevated blood pressure, unexplained blood pressure in the emergency department, half of them actually had hypertension. And don't be dismayed if the person says, well, I I haven't known a history of hypertension or taking blood pressure pills. Well, if you've got 170 over 100, you are inadequately treated. Here's the number. Go to your doctor. Tell them that the number was quite high when we saw you, and you may need to be on some additional medication or something to that effect. Yeah, and I mean, we can't obviously practice medicine for everybody, but that's a simple act, which if you look down the road, if I had the best neurosurgeons in the world and the best cardiologists, or I had the ability to control everybody's blood pressure starting at age 20, I'd win in who would prevent heart disease in the country. That's more important than anything else. All right, let's get another topic here All right. one second. And this is one that has come up and been asked to me several times, and I just want to make sure we bring it up. And that has to do with controlled substances and when the DEA considers you a candy man. Mm. Yes. Really? The problem is obviously very clear. Now that we have computer networks, and I'm sure you have one in California as we have in Michigan, you can type into the computer and get something called a MAPS printout. In fact, you can actually get it for three states around to see how many times in the last year someone has had registered drugs filled. I think that at some point in time, it becomes incumbent upon you. When the patients had five and six and seven and eight visits in a short period of time, and you haven't been able to successfully move them into pain management, you probably ought to pull the maps, or that's what it's called, the computer program of how many times they've had visits, and then you're going to have to make some decisions. But I've never seen any emergency doc 
hit or pushed on for a few visits. And what our state is now doing, you can tell me what California is doing. I occasionally get printouts from the state that says, in a polite way, they say, did you know that your patient has had these many prescriptions filled in the last so many months? And, you know, that's a nice way of them saying, hey, are you thinking about this? And I've never seen any of my partners put on the hook for this. But you know what? When the state's writing to you saying, there's a problem here. You better take it seriously. Yeah, you're on notice kind of thing. And, yeah. and plus, yeah. uh, the doctors are just utterly shocked by all of the other people who have been mm-hmm. giving them. You're just a part of the problem. Yeah, you're never the main actor here. By the way, as part of this, most emergency departments do not release what the upcoming schedule is. If anyone calls in and you hear the question, when is Dr. So-and-so on the schedule? We don't answer that question. What we say is... We're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The doctors do vary, but we're happy to see you. And the candy man will be here too. <laughs> <at 7 o'clock. laughs> yeah. <laughs> the candy man can. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do at USC? Well, actually, we talked about this recently. We don't even have a frequent narcotic user book. Yeah, and you shouldn't. I we don't. have this other system we use. It's called 30-hour wait times. Yeah, it's called that. <laughs> if, you, if you wait 30 hours, you really need some narcotics. It's called Darwinian triage. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, um, nobody with their right mind would be a drug abuser. You'd be having seizures in the waiting room at the yeah. county before you got your drugs refilled. Well, everything is a matter of resistance to flow. So if the high resistance in your waiting room is the problem, it's probably just easier to go out on the street and obtain what you want at that moment in time, and even per hour. I recommend personally going to the doctor's parking lot and removing the radio from a Mercedes. <laughs> You're going to be much more effective. And you sound quicker. like a gentleman who's been affected by this problem. <laughs> I can see that. Another question was seriously raised, and we should go through this again, because unfortunately it's one of those things that happens twice a shift. Consent from the intoxicated patient. We do not treat a number. We treat a condition. If the patient to you appears intoxicated, by definition, they cannot give consent. The patient who's saying, well, if you touch me, I'm going to see you, that patient cannot give consent. What he's told you by physical examination is that he is incapable of functioning at that moment in time. And you don't need to ask consent from that patient. It's always nice to be pleasant, but when push comes to shove... The last thing you want documented on that chart by the nurses is slurred speech, stumbling gait, and now the patient wanders out the door. You've let them out the door. You're in big trouble. You're in very big trouble. Yeah, so it's a clinical definition, not a biochemical definition. So you can send somebody home who's got a blood alcohol of 0.2 that's walking, talking, able to make decisions for themselves. And there are other people that 0.05 may not be appropriate to send home. Are you kidding? If we get a young teenage girl going to the prom who's had something to drink at 0.05, she needs to be intubated practically. (laughs) Then we have Olympic-level drinkers, the 400 club. And at 300, they're getting a little shaky, and they need some more alcohol. This can be put into the context of a medical diagnosis. They have an acute chemically-induced organic brain syndrome. Right. That's another way of saying you're really drunk out of your mind, but it allows people to understand why people's rights can be taken away from them because they're not capable, because their brain is dysfunctional right now. Absolutely. Actually, with a significant number of our patients, we try to find the magic window of where their 
gone from incredibly intoxicated to then not withdrawing and get them in that window. That's a very special window for them. <laughs> of, of course it is. The other thing is I've always found it very difficult in that group of patients to find the reasonable adult who actually wants to take them home because most of them have worn out their welcome in most places. And it's a growing and difficult problem. And I have no idea what it's like in Southern California, but where we are, the amount of funds for things like alcohol oh. detox. Of the, if, I know Man, you guys are rolling. The, this is the land of milk and honey. We I just know. have so much money coming in. We have no idea. It's piled up. They have a tractor and, and bulldozers pushing this stuff around here. I'm yeah. very upset because now they're talking about a three-cent soda tax. That's going to kill me. The Red Bull thing is going <laughs> to Called a maps printout. In fact, you can actually get it for three states around to see how many times in the last year someone has had registered drugs filled. I think that at some point in time it becomes incumbent upon you. When the patients had five and six and seven and eight visits in a short period of time, and you haven't been able to successfully move them into pain management, you probably ought to pull the maps, or that's what it's called, the computer program of how many times they've had visits, and then you're going to have to make some decisions. But I've never seen any emergency doc hit or pushed on for a few visits. And what our state is now doing, you can tell me what California is doing. I occasionally get printouts from the state that says, in a polite way, they say, did you know that you're patient? has had these many prescriptions filled in the last so many months. And, you know, that's a nice way of them saying, hey, are you thinking about this? And I've never seen any of my partners put on the hook for this. But you know what? When the state's writing to you saying, there's a problem here, you better take it seriously. Yeah, you're on notice kind of thing. Yeah. Plus, yeah. The doctors are just utterly shocked by all of the other people who have been mm-hmm. giving them. You're just a part of the problem. Yeah, you're never the main actor here. By the way, as part of this, most emergency departments do not release what the upcoming schedule is. If anyone calls in and you hear the question, when is Dr. So-and-so on the schedule? We don't answer that question. What we say is we're open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The doctors do vary, but we're happy to see you. And the candy man will be here too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Candyman. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do at USC? Well, actually, we talked about this recently. We don't even have a frequent narcotic user book. Yeah, and you shouldn't. We have this other system we use. It's called 30 hour wait times. Yeah, it's called that. (laughs) If you you wait 30 hours, you really need some narcotics. It's called Darwinian triage. Yeah, um, nobody with their right mind would be a drug abuser. You'd be having seizures in the waiting room at the yeah. county before you got your drugs refilled. Well, everything is a matter of resistance to flow. So if the high resistance in your waiting room is the problem, it's probably just easier to go out on the street and obtain what you want at that moment in time, and even per hour. If I recommend personally going to the doctor's parking lot and removing the radio from a Mercedes. <laughs> You're going to be much more effective. And you sound quicker. like a gentleman who's been affected by this problem. I can see that. Another question was seriously raised, and we should go through this again, because unfortunately it's one of those things that happens twice a shift. Consent from the intoxicated patient. We do not treat a number. We treat a condition. If the patient to you appears intoxicated, by definition, they cannot give consent. The patient who's saying, well, if you touch me, I'm going to sue you, that patient 
cannot give consent. What he's told you by physical examination is that he is incapable of functioning at that moment in time. And you don't need to ask consent from that patient. It's always nice to be pleasant. But when push comes to shove, the last thing you want documented on that chart by the nurses is slurred speech, stumbling gait. And now the patient wanders out the door. You've let them out the door. You're in big trouble. You're in very big trouble. Yeah, so it's a clinical definition, not a biochemical definition. So you can send somebody home who's got a blood alcohol of 0.2 that's walking, talking, able to make decisions for themselves, and there are other people that 0.05 may not be appropriate to send home. Are you kidding? If we get a young teenage girl going to the prom who's had something to drink at 0.05, she needs to be intubated practically. (laughs) Then we have Olympic-level drinkers, the 400 club, and at 300, they're getting a little shaky. And they need some more alcohol. This can be put into the context of a medical diagnosis. They have an acute chemically induced organic brain syndrome. Right. That's another way of saying you're really drunk out of your mind. But it allows (laughs) people to understand why people's rights can be taken away from them because they're not capable, because their brain is dysfunctional right now. Absolutely. Actually, with a significant number of our patients, we try to find the magic window of where they're gone from incredibly intoxicated to then not withdrawing and get them in that window. That's a very special window for <laughs> of, of course it is. The other thing is I've always found it very difficult in that group of patients to find the reasonable adult who actually wants to take them home because most of them have worn out their welcome in most places. And it's a growing and difficult problem. And I have no idea what it's like in Southern California, but where we are, the amount of funds for things like alcohol oh, detox. I know man, you guys are rolling. The, this is the land of milk and honey. We I just know. have so much money coming in. We have no idea. It's piled up. They have a tractor and, and bulldozers pushing this stuff around here. I'm yeah. very upset because now they're talking about a three-cent soda tax. That's going to kill me. The Red Bull thing is going <laughs> to <laughs> Moving on? Moving on. There's been some discussion, and we've had some people write again and ask this question. They know that I spend a fair amount of time looking at medical legal questions. Both of you gentlemen have. And they've asked the question, what does it take? Or I would now like to branch out and do some medical legal expert work. What does it really take? And I'd just like to give you some thoughts. Are you going to give your trade secrets? I'm going to give away my trade secrets. And I, I think the first one is... You need to reorient your mind if you're going to deal in the legal field because lawyers think differently than doctors. And courts try and prove something different than we do in the practice of medicine. We have a very simple center of what we do. That's not true in legal cases. There are inherent, as you and I, as all of us know, inherent doctor-to-doctor conflicts. Well, the public doesn't want to know or hear or think about that. We all don't think the same thing, and I think that there are definite pluses and minuses for doing medical legal work because if reasonable doctors do not interact with the system, how do they know what the right answer is? And anytime we think there's one right answer, remember that they've been publishing textbooks for hundreds of years. The reason they keep publishing them is because the previous ones weren't right on a lot of issues. If we'd had the right textbook 
at some point in time, we wouldn't have to have any more textbooks. Now, so can I ask you about that then? Yeah. Because this is an important section of this tape, I think, because I get this question all the time about doing medical malpractice reviews and stuff. So one of the comments that comes up is that, should I do both sides? Should I do both defense and plaintiff work? And I've heard Jerry say you should do both. You absolutely should do both because it makes you better at the job. And there are many times when you can get doctors off by working with plaintiff's attorneys by saying there's nothing here. And there are other people say it just hurts my soul so much to be the plaintiff's expert witness against another physician. I just can't bring myself to do it. So the specific question is, if you're going to do this, should you do both? Well, I have done the occasional plaintiff's case in my career. I think that we all have a certain bias or view of the world. And I think to meet my threshold of what would be an appropriate plaintiff's case, if I get one of those, I would do it. Actually, where I do the most good is when the defense calls me, they give me a case, I talk to them on the phone and say, look, I've read this, this violated the standard of care, and there's a harm from it. Settle this case. I actually do more plaintiffs good than they know by getting a reasonably rapid decision out of the defense side. And I think most of the good defense attorneys want to hear now, early on, what the case really is. The last thing they want to hear is a surprise at deposition of the expert, the plaintiff's expert, or at the time of trial. Because they have to make intelligent decisions about the expenditures of their monies. It's no good for them to put $150,000 into what they call allocated loss adjustment. That's the money spent other than true indemnity payment. And then have to pay indemnity on top of it. So the smart lawyers know when they've got a loser and get it off the table. Are you a better expert witness? Do you stand higher in their stead when they're describing you to the jury if they can say, this is our expert witness and he does both plaintiff and defense work and this time he is on defense because he believes that nothing was done wrong here? Is that better than if you trot me out and they say, Mel only ever defends doctors, so you can't listen to a word he says? Well, obviously that discussion goes on and I have had to admit on the stand that I have given testimony for a plaintiff. What's very effective is if when you're an expert witness and the lawyer against you was a plaintiff who'd ever sent you cases, and then you make sure that's known to the jury. So, counselor, this was like the time that you sent me a case. Well, you must have thought I was an expert. You sent me one to see. That can only happen when you're Greg Henry and you're doing (laughs) hundreds of these cases. Hundreds of these cases. That doesn't happen. I got another question though. Well, I'm on a roll here because the Red Bull is kicking in. Okay. What do you Uh say to those people that say the system is so corrupt that this whole entire way of dealing with harm to patients is so corrupt that the only people making money out of here this thing is lawyers and expert witnesses that I shouldn't even be involved with it? Well, understand this: when you're sued as a physician, you expect someone of character and substance to review your case and act accordingly to help you out. It would take a pretty big room to hold all the people I've defended over the years and ask them whether they think it's a good thing because this is torture to their lives. And we are going to do a risk management monthly in the future about what the real effect of the malpractice system is on doctors. But I would agree with you that the New Zealanders seem to have gotten this right. They do not have a blame system. They do not have a battle of experts and they review things entirely differently. And I think, let's hope 
that if we do a real medical reform in this country, that this is part of the reform, that we move away from the ridiculous system we have at this moment in time. So you agree, Dr. Henry, that the system is ridiculous, and yet it's the system you have to play within it. It's the only ball field they invite me to play on. And I think that we have to deal with that at this moment in time. It's interesting that this is English law. The English abandoned the current system we have for doing this 100 years ago. They don't have a battle of experts. They get one expert from the national health and ask him a simple question. Was this reasonable or unreasonable? And that's it. Well, yeah, the New Zealand people make a distinction between peer review and compensation for damages. And I guess the state pays for the damages there based on some... Formulas, formulas that they use, and then the peer review process determines whether that bad outcome was due to your screwing up or not, and then they can keep a watch on you, limit your privileges, those kinds of things, but they disconnect the two. Well, the other thing, the New Zealanders are into something called sufficiency. They don't have a lottery mentality, which means they're going to make somebody a multimillionaire. It's not in the structure and integrity of their system. They don't believe that that's the way you ought to go. And I think that if you look at the way their system is structured, they ask different questions than we do. If we're going to do reasonable health care reform, which we have a chance to do, that would be an interesting way of viewing it. It's interesting. Not too long ago, Nancy Pelosi said that there was going to be a bill out on the floor by the end of July. And they have all of these meetings going on with all of these disparate parties but the fact of the matter is, is not one of them really yet has stepped up to the plate and said, I'm not crossing this line. But you've got to believe the insurance companies, the doctors, the, all of these disparate interests, you cannot do, deliver what we're doing now for substantially less money and bring on the other 45 million uninsured without huge changes to the current system. Rick, there's plenty of money in this system. But people don't, aren't going to give it up. Yeah, don't get me going on this because... <laughs> Nancy Pelosi can say anything she wants. Enough said. She wouldn't understand the issues involved in this case if they smacked her in the head with a board. And nobody wants to do what needs to be done, which is to ask, what things are we going to pay for? What is the rank order of that care? And you got to remember, most of the things we talk about with the poor are actually relatively cheap things. We're talking about elderly end-of-life care where you have people on ventilators with no brain function for eight months and a $200,000 bill. Give me a break. And you know what? You haven't heard the president yet have the courage to step up and talk about what we're not going to give in the new health care bill. And I think we're the only one of the 17 Western democracies that does not have a package which is understandable about what you get for your health care. You're going to get so many letters because we've crossed that line and talked about politics, but I think we all agree. What about there's religion? Not a... <laughs> Why don't we throw some religion in it too? But uh, you know what? It's pretty clear that there's not a Democrat <laughs> or a Republican in this country that has a solution, has an answer. We need radical reform, but nobody has the power or the money, the will to get this done. I just don't see it's going to happen I'll do it. soon. I'll do it, but you've got to buy me an iron suit and plenty of bullets <laughs> because... Nobody will be happy right. with the answer that has to come. Yep. And the British got forced into this at the end of the Second World War. They were destitute. They had no choice but to do something. And in the long run, it's turned out very well. They have better infant mortality, male longevity, and female longevity than we do for about half the money. I actually have the solution, but nobody's buying it, that Apple Computer should run our health care because they do everything so well.
<laughs> Turn healthcare into the iPhone, and it'll be okay, baby. A combination of Apple, <laughs> Apple and Disneyland. I'm siding with the chubby guy in the commercials, the PC guy. That's who I'm hanging out with. Yeah, yeah. That, I understand it. little I understand Apple it. people. <laughs> They're cool. Hey, listen, you, me, how's you coming down that list here? Of, uh, uh, we're working on it. We're working on it. Okay. We just fixed healthcare. Reform. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to cure cancer. All right. Next being one. An expert witness. Yeah, the other parts of being an expert witness, there are pitfalls. Come on. What uh, can I be? And, well, First of I all, I think you're making it up to keep the, the competition down. The academic nerd. Let me just tell you right now: if you think that calculus wins cases, you're a buffoon. The great academician and the great presenter are different things, and you have to be able to present to a jury. These are 12 people who were picked from the voters' rolls who couldn't get out of jury duty. <laughs> We've said this before, but that's not true anymore. You can't get out of bloody <laughs> you know, doing this anymore. Los Angeles, we don't care what your problem is. You know, you're <laughs> yeah, going to be on jury duty. That's right. And you're going to have to speak to them. And I think that's a different discipline than what we do. And if you understand that, you will do fine. If you honestly believe you're in a science competition, this isn't the high school science fair. And so you really have to understand what your job is and what you're supposed to do. By the way, there's the concept of optimal care versus standard care. What the court system tries in every state is something called the standard of care, that which the reasonable doctor of like or similar training would do under like or similar circumstances. And there may be five things which are reasonable, compatible with the standard of care. If we look in the the little book under certain infections, There are probably 10 antibiotics, which would be perfectly reasonable. So if you gave one as opposed to the other, is that a violation of the standard of care? Also, what happens at USC may not be what happens at 2 o'clock in the morning at Keokuk, Iowa. Certainly what happens in the Massachusetts General Hospital may not be able to be duplicated, you know, in Cedar Springs. And I think we need to have some reasonableness about where health care is going. A huge mistake is for someone who has never been out there. I was I opposed a gentleman about four weeks ago who left his residency and stayed in academics. And the case was in a 7,000-visit ER where there were 24-hour shifts, and the nearest big hospital is 200 miles away. He has every specialty upstairs. He can call down the expert in the left testicle to testify if he wants. And I think that to do that is very difficult. You ought to do something which is similar to be able to carry on those kinds of discussions. So let's say I'm taking some cases. I should send on those cases which are from small community hospitals because I don't work in a small community hospital. I don't understand the pressures of a small community hospital. I should kind of stick to the large academic centers. Well, if you were testifying against me, I would go after your neck because of those items, yes. Exactly. So that's a perfectly reasonable, honorable, right thing to do. Say, look, I don't do that. My friend Lawrence Friedman, he works at a community hospital. Send that to him. That would be the honest thing to do, which says, I work in a place where every shift there are 15 residents, We have surgical residents, we have this, we have that. That's really not the same as being in Keokuk at 2 o'clock in the morning. They have nothing to do with each other. And as long as we understand that, I think it's okay. But what it would do is be demean your credibility. If I was the counsel on the other side, no matter which side you were on, I'd spend a lot of time talking about what you did daily and the number of patients you see primarily a month. 
not a residency's first and checks out with you, but what you actually see. And the number of times, for example, you have been in a situation where you're the only doctor in the hospital. And let's say there's a woman who's having a vaginal delivery. How many times has that ever come up in your career? I bet it's extremely rare. All right, Greg, so you're going down the list here. You would have to be an idiot not to do these cases. I've seen doctors charging 500 dollars an hour. I've seen ENT doctors charge substantially more than that. But, you know, our colleagues, doctors that you and I know, are sitting at home in their lounge chairs reading cases for $500 an hour. What idiot would not want to do that work? Well, I don't do it anymore. Well, well that's, that's because you're, you're so affluent now that uh, you don't need to do I'm that. But busy. most ER docs would give their left testicle to be able to make $500 an hour sitting at home reading cases. Well, I don't think they all get $500 an hour. Some of them get more, yes. Some of them get more. But secondly, people frequently say, well, how do you get these cases? And there's a very easy way. You publish in books, and you get known as an expert in certain areas or certain fields in emergency medicine. I mean, when people want to nail the coffin, so to speak, shut on a case, they want somebody with muscles and credentials in that area. Being cute and charming and looking good on the stand is not the same as having credentials in the field. Juries don't understand everything about it, but they immediately understand that someone has written. I was actually involved in a case with one of our good friends. I was an expert for the defense, and David Talon was an expert for the defense. And David is very well-known and skilled in infectious disease issues. The plaintiff's expert is trying to give him a tough time on the stand. He's actually reading, whether he knows it or not, from one of David Talon's papers. And David corrects him on the mistake that he made. And just to watch David say, now, counselor, who do you think understands this best, you who can't pronounce it or me who wrote it? Hmm. It it was, I I mean, that sort of stuff. Sounds a little arrogant to me. Well, (laughs) bottom line is. I'm sure it works. Yeah, it should work just fine. And really the bottom line is there's a reason they seek you out. Let me tell you what's awful is if you list yourself with a service. As soon as you list yourself with an expert witness service, you're referred to as a medical whore. You're now an advertising physician. I used to do some medical malpractice, and I don't now because I didn't have enough time to do it. I think that's a skill. There's a whole way of doing it, and you've got to do it enough to be good at it, I think. And so I felt like unless you're doing it reasonably frequently, I don't feel I could keep that skill up. Well, the other thing is it is time-consuming, and depending on what your time demands are... When they've hired you to go and represent them or to speak for them at trial, there is nothing as indistinct in this country as the time a trial is actually going to start. I've literally had 20 trial dates on some cases. And so you have to be flexible enough to fix your schedule, change, go, and represent the side that you're working for correctly when a trial actually comes up. And if you're not going to commit yourself at that level, then don't do it at all. The other thing is, if you're not willing to put yourself out there and subject yourself to criticism of your peers, don't do it. I think we've mentioned before on these tapes that the Ethics Committee of ASAP is looking at testimony. They are looking at egregious testimony. So be prepared that if you are giving what we call egregious testimony, not scientifically based testimony, 
that you open yourself up for intense criticism from the specialty itself. And we're not the leaders in this. The neurosurgeons are the leaders in this, and the orthopedic surgeons are the leaders in this. They've really cleaned up the house on some of these folks. And believe me, you better have a leather jackstrap for this discussion because it can get very intense and very unpleasant. Next, if you're going to do this at any reasonable level, you're going to enter what they call the deposition phase or the fact-finding phase of any case. You've given an opinion to someone, and then someone's got to know what your opinion is, so they will take a deposition. And one should understand the difference between depositions, exploratory depositions, and trial testimony, and they're really quite different. Depositions are where they want to know what you're going to say if this comes to trial. And it can be a very broad and probing view of you, your background, your mother, whatever they'd like to ask about. And there can be objections made in the deposition. Not all of it gets to go to the trial court. But it is a very far-reaching evaluation. I've certainly been in depositions where the first three hours were about me and my background and what I do for a living And then they finally got around to the science of what goes on. They want to know how many shifts per month you work in the department. How many central lines have you put in this year? How many people have you actually intubated? Not your residents intubated, but you've intubated. And so I think you need to be prepared to answer those sorts of questions. The other thing is all depositions are laid with traps. And without carefully studying how deposition is done and how the traps are laid, you know the famous trap about, well, you certainly consider Titinelli to be an authority in the field. Well, that's a trap question. And if you don't know that that's a trap question, you can start to agree with things that you really don't want to agree with. So I think unless you study those various aspects, don't go there unless you're going to go there for real. When the trial comes around, most doctors do not view the trial as theater of the absurd, which it is. It's got a bunch of people, none of whom actually understand the science involved, who are speaking to 12 people who specifically don't understand the science involved. I mean, they ask in voir dire of of the jurors in jury selection, are you a doctor? Are you a nurse? Is your son a doctor? These sorts of things so that they can mold that jury specifically into a group of people who are going to be more easily influenced into their views of a case. And trial technique is very interesting. When you're on the stand, the first person who talks to you is the lawyer on your side. That's called direct examination. Direct examination is you as the expert speaking to the jury. The next person to speak to you is the other side's lawyer. That's called cross-examination. And cross-examination is him speaking to the jury. He's making a series of statements in the form of questions to you. But it's not how you would actually think of in a sort of a usual give and take of information and ideas would take place. And it can be an incredibly frustrating kind of experience for a doc who has a lot of things to say about the case and you're hemmed in by the rules of court procedure. It's a much more limited way of carrying on an exchange of ideas than you would expect it to be. So it's not like on TV. (laughs) No, it's certainly not as rapid fire as on TV. I can't get up there and be incredibly articulate and get the guy off, yay, 
everybody's you know having watched all the lawyers on tv i guess it's like watching the doctors on tv it was always interesting that in er they always had a diagnosis in five minutes so they were being immediately pushed to the operating room it was fast-paced law shows are fast-paced law itself moves at a snail's pace and it's just incredibly frustrating for people who have emergency medicine type personalities to watch these proceed over five years. I actually have a case in my folder that now has been to the <laughs> the appellate court in this particular state. It's now in its 11th year. Not only is the patient dead, their wife is dead, and so there's a few children left to pursue this thing, but they have a life of their own. They go on, and it can be uh, very, very disconcerting. But the smart witness knows how to get his points across he knows how to preserve everybody's dignity in this and it's very important that you understand that the doctor involved if you are the witness against that doctor you got to be very careful to preserve their dignity because what you're doing is something which is incredibly painful to that person and the last thing you want is the jury to have sympathy based on your denigration of their medical skills. People will say to me, what is the most important part of being the witness in a trial? And I would say, getting your points across. And if I have to, I go to the board, and I will ask the permission of the judge. I would like to explain this further. And that's the job of your counsel, is to throw you curveballs that you can then hit points that need to be made and explained to a jury. Now, can the other side object? Of course. I was in a case in Louisville, Kentucky one time, and Kentucky is one of the two states which allows the jurors at the end of each witness to ask the witness questions. The jurors can take notes and ask the witness questions. And when you say witness, you mean expert witness. The expert witness. And the (laughs) funny thing is, in a system like that, either counsel, either the defense or the plaintiff's counsel, could object, just like they do to each other's questions. But they're not going to. Who's going to object to a (laughs) juror's question? Out of order. Out of order, yeah. Yeah. So I actually was giving an answer to a juror, and the plaintiff's counsel said, well, judge, we're not here to listen to to a speech. And the judge said, sit down. This is the only good testimony we've had in this trial. <laughs> and, I, you know, I think that to not understand how that stage is set and how those facts come in is a mistake. And believe me, the great trial attorneys are great presenters. They're great actors. And they know how to get the attention. you got to remember, to have people sit in a room, this is just like continuing medical education. How do you get them to sit in a room and stay awake for eight hours or seven hours? They're very good at that. They're talented. And people who are going to be expert witness at that level need to be talented as well. I guess the last couple of points I would make is you need to understand that, and you need to have, I think, a personal sense of strength, that you will come under criticism. You will be maligned. You will be this and that. You will have questions which you never thought would come at you. And you have to feel comfortable with who you are and what your experience base is and what the true experience is of physicians and be honest about talking about that. For example, whenever I get a case that has to do with criticizing the 
CPR done in the emergency department, and I still get an occasional case like that. I mean, what's the big picture here? The big picture is they come in dead, they stay dead. They didn't have a pulse in the field. What are the chances you're going to have a pulse now? And, you know, to say, well, isn't it true, doctor, that they should have given more epinephrine? I would say, counselor, there's no data to suggest that the giving of epinephrine changes the outcome in cardiac arrest. The ACLS manual says this or that. You certainly look at that as authoritative, don't you? He said, no, that's a political book. That's the result of a discussion around a table supported by almost no science. Move on. You have to get your points across because they build a world in a courtroom which doesn't really exist. Now, if I asked you, do elephants fly, you'd say no. In the courtroom, they'd say, have you seen every elephant? So you really don't know whether elephants can fly, do you? The courtroom in America is the only place where elephants can fly. Well, I'm impressed. (laughs) This is one of the things we weren't going to ask you to do in a future issue, Greg, is to tell us how you go through a case, what you do do, what you don't do, whether you take notes, whether all of those kinds of things. that When you're reviewing a case, when you yes, first get exactly, it in the mail. Exactly. Uh, so that you can tell us your tricks. Because uh, you're obviously getting older. and <laughs> You would be around forever. Somebody else has to do it. I was going to need to replace you, obviously. <laughs> so just pass this stuff on. We got some letters. Greg, you have some. I have some. Elvis, do you have any? I do have one that I want to discuss. We can get to right now, actually. I'll ask Greg on the tape here. So one of our residents, Jim Yen, was listening to MRAP, and we did this discussion, and Peter Rosen made a statement that he wanted clarified. And Dr. Rosen said, the Dr. Rosen, by the way, said, don't write on the chart this big, long differential diagnosis. You saw the patient with chest pain and don't write, I consider PE low risk and I consider acute coronary syndrome low risk and I consider the section low risk and list out this long differential. That's just opening you up to litigation. How did you really know there wasn't a dissection? And you obviously thought about it. There was something there that made you worry. You should have worked it up. So I wanted to get Greg's response to that. Jim was asking, <laughs> should I write nothing on the differential? Should I write a long differential? It's confusing. Well... Peter and I have known each other for about 30 years, and I think that Peter's right in this case. The problem with starting to list differentials is when do you stop? I think we write down a working diagnosis. You and I, every time we see a 28-year-old woman with abdominal pain, could it be ectopic? Could it be this? Could it be that? There must be 50 things it could be. If we look in Cope's textbook of the surgical abdomen, Maybe there's a hundred different diagnoses it could be. We can't list all those on the chart. I think that if you do reasonable things and come to a reasonable hypothesis, to sit there and say why it isn't all these things is not a good idea. I think Peter Rosen is right in this case. Well, the driver for this is Medicare charting requirements, which many people believe mandate that you list the diagnostic considerations for this particular case. Now, obviously, it is stupid. But (laughs) wait a second. Why does the fact that they're requiring it and stupid, why shouldn't they go together? (laughs) Everything they've required over the years has been stupid. This this comment is made by Dr. Gregory Henry (laughs) for himself and does not reflect the views of the management of this production here. (laughs) If you could look at many of these checkoff charting systems, all of those boxes of the causes of chest pain and belly pain are there because they believe that that is one of the requirements. Now, As time has gone by, I don't believe that that really is the current view of most people. 
But I could see why a question like that would come from. It's not a logical question. It's a question driven by mandatory charting requirements for CMS. But a little bit of it is not unreasonable, right? So a young person comes in, pleuritic chest pain, they're a little short of breath. You've convinced yourself this is not a PE. That's a reasonable thing to say, look... I know that anybody reading this chart is thinking PE, but here's why I don't think it's a PE, why we don't need to go further, why we don't need to expose them to radiation because of X, Y, and Z reasons. But your review of systems essentially is your Wells criteria review, isn't it? I mean, you're going to go right down that list under the review of systems, and anybody who's a physician reading that chart understands why they're low risk at that moment in time. I guess you can say, look, the perk rule is negative and do all this stuff, but is it unreasonable to have in your medical decision-making note, look, we all understand there's a couple of bad things I've got to rule out here, and say in your medical decision-making note, this person is low risk for a PE and acute coronary syndrome. I'm not going to list out 50 things, but we all know there's a few big ones here, and I'm not worried about them for these reasons. Well, actually, tomorrow I'm giving a talk on aortic dissection. I do believe that if you want to generate a decent chart regarding a chest pain patient, that you need to somehow convey to the reader of that chart that you've considered the big three, which is acute coronary syndrome syndrome, aortic dissection, and PE by putting down some things that makes it clear to the reader that you have considered this diagnosis, even if it's something like differential pulses are equal. Now, the fact of the matter is that the pulses are equal or not. If you look at the books and the papers, that's got very little to do with yeah, it. Yeah, have... that is not the key issue. But when you say the mediastinum is normal on chest x-ray... It makes you clear that you've considered this diagnosis. So the question is, do you need to do it twice? So you're saying you do it once indirectly by going through the red flags and the negative red flags, as it were, the pertinent positives, pertinent negatives. But do you need to take it a step further in cases where you know that this is a moderately high-risk case, for example, and just say, state it explicitly? I thought about it. I didn't think it was there clinically. Well, the problem is if they say, well, Dasha, you didn't really rule out a dissection, did you? I mean, isn't that done with a CT, a CT Yeah, see, that is the problem. 20% in my lecture tomorrow, 20% of people who have a dissection will have a normal chest x-ray. So, Well, we all know that, but this is the age-old argument. No, do I need to apply the gold standard test to every single low-risk patient in, with for every disease? And, no. And one thing that this country is very bad at is the concept of reasonable misrate. Every other country in the Western world talks about reasonable miss rate. When we talk about sending someone home from the emergency department who's had three sets of normal zymes and three... And listen, we call them markers now. Okay. Markers. Markers. Sorry about that. I'm old, Rick. I'm I'm very old. But that and normal EKGs, we know that they have less than a one in a thousand chance in the next 30 days of having a cardiac death. But there is some possibility of a cardiac death. Nothing we do is perfect. I think the biggest place where this comes up right now is with TIA. What have you actually seen? We can't admit every TIA to the hospital. What are we going to do? Their carotid study is normal. They're in normal sinus rhythm. We've put them on an aspirin. Now what are you going to do? And I think that this entire concept of reasonable miss rate needs to drive kind of how we're going to set policies and workups. You can't reinvent in each trial a new illusion of what health care should be in the country. Because, you know, I bet at your place you can't see everybody in 30 minutes. (laughs) 
But don't we define the reasonable miss rate by the reasonable man or woman criteria, which is you, the expert, have looked at it and said, no, he didn't do the MRI on this case, but any reasonable person would have said it's really low. It's some magic low number of 1%, so most reasonable emergency physicians wouldn't have done it. I know that Rick and I were having this discussion about what's reasonable with chest pain and what tests should you do with chest pain. And I don't really know what the diagnosis is, but I'm not worried about acute coronary syndrome. I'm comfortable in saying... I don't know what it is, but I don't know what most people have when they come to the emergency department. I just know that your chance is pretty damn low. Well, we're going to save this debate for for another issue. Mel and I are going to arm wrestle on his view of the world and at least the Heart Association's view of the world in these chest pain cases on a future recording. But back to the letters. Back to the letters. So So did we answer your letter, guys? I think so. I'll ask Jim if we answered it. I'm honestly not sure whether I answered these before, so uh, if, I, if these sound familiar, <laughs> I'll let you just know. say this. This makes it, make it sound like they just are brand new. <laughs> so Rob Spence, my friend, basically says, I'm in the working in the middle of nowhere. Two-year-old comes in with, I'm concerned about intersusception. Our radiologist doesn't want to do it. We did that one. Never mind. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> you know, Bob Bitterman, our, our Mtala expert, basically chimed in on this because yeah. in that case, one of the issues, there was multiple, one of the issues was sending back to the sending hospital, the patient after the study is done and proven to be negative. And Bob said, Mtala does not control transfers back to facilities. That was one of the concerns, but we'll move on. You got one? Or I'll give you Steve Gluciello's. Okay, give me Steve. This is a new one. Steve sent me a printout from a plaintiff's blog on therapeutic hypothermia and cardiac arrests. It notes that the practice has been endorsed by the Heart Association and Ilcourt as well. And that is, this, I didn't know this, as of January 1st, 2009, certain cardiac arrest patients may only be transported to hospitals that have cooling systems available. And I think that that was in New York City. I don't know what a cooling system is. It's called it, ice. Well, ice. I, no, no, it really isn't ice. If you look at what the Australians and the Israelis did, isn't there that program of two bags, 2,000 cc's of four degree centigrade fluid and none of this had, like, these helmets and all these... No, they actually, guys. the Australians just cooled them, the Austrians just cooled them, and uh, they just, did different... That's just a that start. That cool saline thing actually hasn't panned out, because the guys doing it in Australia have tried this, and they haven't published their data yet, but it hasn't worked out as well <laughs> yeah, as they yeah, would have yeah. Preliminary data, good. Less Those preliminary of you data, who are so in New York, let us know whether you have now regional centers of excellence with regards to cooling. because This is really silly, isn't it? Because now there are a lot of people questioning the veracity of that data and whether it really has been shown with the clarity that we think it has. We're getting ourselves into you- trouble again by making standards of care or of groups coming out and saying, this is what you should do when we're really not sure. Joe Lex sent me a little something. About, this was also a while ago. It was in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Hi, Joe. Joe's a friend of ours. And He's a good, good man. Good guy. Involved in an $11 million settlement pregnant patient who presented to Episcopal Hospital, where I did lots and lots of rotations when I was a Temple student, was complaining of headaches and numbness and nausea for three days. She was discharged and returned to another Temple-owned hospital the next day. Now, remember, she's pregnant. And again on the third day. Three times three and times you're in. <laughs> on the fourth day, the patient passed out and fell down some stairs, and the diagnosis of a brain tumor was made. A brain tumor? Brain tumor, yes. That was the diagnosis. So she presented in the courtroom blind. She had everything that you could possibly think of. 
And they wheeled in a blind pregnant lady into the courtroom no. with her family? Yes, exactly. You're losing. So <laughs> they lost $11 million. One of the assertions in that case was that one of the reasons the CAT scan wasn't done is that, at least in Philadelphia, all of that Temple would have gotten was $135, and yet it cost more than $3,000. Well, obviously, it doesn't cost more than $3,000. No, the they charge, charge more than 3000 And one of the rebuttals that Temple made is, uh, mm-hmm. if you ever know where Temple is located, I mean, they do more free care and more indigent care than probably anybody in the Western Hemisphere. So yep. to say that uh, you didn't... But I think the message for emergency physicians is people can't come back to your hospital three days in a row with a problem that you're describing to uh, probably the nausea of pregnancy or something like that. Three strikes and you're out. Well, actually, three strikes and you're in. Here's another letter. This one is, we may have covered this. Remind me if we did, guys. This is about a physician's assistant who was working with a doc in the emergency department. The physician's assistant was taking care of a septic patient. There was some conference between the doctor and the PA initially about what to do, and some of the things that were supposed to be done didn't get done. And the doctor, as the captain of the ship, was kind of viewed as the problem. And a couple issues. Number one, the PA let him down. The question is, what can he do about that? And I think that it really depends if the PA is a employee of your group or an independent contractor of a group, then you can address that directly to the PA. But if these PAs employ the hospital, there may be some different channels that you may have to go through to properly address this. Let's take the words and go through what they mean. Physicians, assistant. That physician is in charge of what they do. You can have the PA do anything you want. I have PAs who, under my supervision, do spinal taps. They close wounds. They do all kinds of things. But what I can't do is back away from that PA when there's trouble and say, well, I really have nothing to do with it. Because, you know, most PAs, if they work for the group, they work for somebody. That means their remuneration goes to somebody for the work that they do. You know, we have to step up to the plate. If you don't like what's being done or happening, you're the doc in charge. And by the way, you're the one with the license. And I promise you, if there are sanctions, you're the one with the provider number they're going to come after. So they're litigation extenders? Is that what they're? They're litigation extenders, just as they are physician extenders. Well, I don't you're... like the term physician extender. It sounds like something I should be buying at an adult <laughs> bookstore. Okay, But I think that what we need to do is put this in perspective. A nurse practitioner has a separate license. This is very similar to having residents. You can bitch and piss and moan about your resident, but what you can't do is pretend that he has the right to see patients independently because he really doesn't. Well, the issue here is he thought that the PA was going to do stuff. Some of that stuff did not get done. There were some outcome-related issues, and he wanted to express his disappointment to the PA and I think that that depends on whether they're your employee or the hospital's employee about how you may do that. You, I think it's obviously important to do that, not necessarily in a punitive manner, but as, at least in an educational way. And then the second thing is the peer review committee said, you're the captain of the ship here, doctor. You should have stepped in and make sure this case was handled properly. Doctor said, you know, I had two other critical patients at the time. One of the things I think, however, that was not addressed in this case is the assumption that what this doctor should have done may not have been really evidence-based. As an example, uh, doctor, you didn't control the blood sugar of this patient in septic shock. Doctor, you did not 
give this person steroids and septic shock who is not responding to vasopressors. Doctor, you picked the wrong vasopressor. Every one of those assertions is wrong. Is wrong. So the fact of the matter is, before you pound your chest and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, look at what they're criticizing you for to ascertain whether there's true validity in their criticism. Here's a couple of quick letters we ought to take care of. One is from George Belkowski, and George is up in Escanaba, Michigan. And George doesn't know this. Upper Peninsula. Well, Upper Peninsula. Well, he's not too far from Marquette. And listen, everything up there is a long way from Snowmobile everything. capital of the world. <laughs> it's one of them. When I was a kid in the 11th grade, I actually spent a summer just outside of Escanaba on the Indian Reservation reshingling houses for Indians. Now it's got an Indian casino. And they got money all over the place, so they don't need do-gooders like me anymore. So that's what it is. But George raises the issue. A question for the Risk Management Monthly panel. We are currently renovating our ED and our down beds. At times, during long wait times, are noted, our nurses have been sending patients to the walk-in clinic, which is a separate entity from the ED, but within the hospital. This occurs after triage, but before they are seen by a provider. I'm concerned about an MTALA violation. Can you advise? God, where's Dr. Bitterman when we need him on this one? Bottom line is this. If it's within the institution, on the grounds, they've been triaged, and it's reasonably close, you're probably okay at that moment in time because you've made some reasonable assertion and you're sending them not off into the blue but to other care. Yeah, how is this any different from being sent to the fast track? It's not like you're going into some limbo. <laughs> some doctor over there is going to see you. Yeah. They just start, or you're not going into the ER. You're going to go to, into another division where you will be examined by a physician. Yeah, well, having lived through an emergency department renovation, you've got my deep sympathy, George, because nothing flows the way it's supposed to. And so I hope we've helped you out on that one. But what we're saying <clears> is that the spirit of the law is MTLA doesn't cover that. That's fine. Because I know, and this was a discussion which was much more 15 years ago, that the letter of the law people were freaking out about even in hospital transfers I and know. what that means. But I think we're to the point now where people have matured and realized, no, about dumping. That's not dumping. That's Let's looking after patients. Let's give you the best patients. example. Women show up in our emergency department or at those at major hospitals, and say, I think I'm going into labor. Well, they aren't seen through the emergency department after 20 weeks. They're sent upstairs, their blood pressure's taken, and they're sent up to labor and delivery. It's another unit in the hospital, but nobody's claiming that that's an MTALA violation, and I think that's a better summary of what we're being presented here. Ron Helster and I saw something that Ron wrote, four cases of inappropriate code resuscitations, Kind of unusual to be sued for codes, don't you think? Yeah. It's relatively rare these days. Uh, he said the cases were fine, except the documentation was the focus of the litigiousness, timing of medications, giving nurses notes, intubation notes. And also he pointed out, beware of the contractual obligation of emergency physicians to go to codes when they have another obligation in the emergency department. And he talks about indemnifying and protecting those physicians who do go to codes. Well, I think it's time for Wine of the Month. It is. Hey. Wine away. Well, we've been whining this entire <laughs> tape, I think. But if you're talking about something to drink, we usually talk about reds and whites. And we got some good comments. People calling me up saying they like the comment that we did a champagne. Well, 
We're going to move again just a little bit away from the usual wine, and we're going to talk about it's the end of the meal. You've served an excellent meal, and now's the time when you turn to your guests and say, coffee or port? Port, uh, of course. <laughs> or sherry. So you get a little pick here. Well, let me just tell you, as a collector of ports, I'm a very big believer in the company Croft. They've been making ports in the 1647, and they make some great ports. But you don't have to buy the expensive ones. For about $16, you can get a Croft Tawny Port, and I'll bet most of your guests won't even know the difference between that and the $200 a bottle one. So that's just a little idea for at the end of the meal. If you'd like a little sweet dessert wine, try the Croft Tawny Port. Sounds good to me. Okay, that's July. That's it. We're done. Thanks very much. In the can. Always good to join you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Talk with you next month. Bye for now.